to the book of 1 Kings chapter 5. You'll find this chapter on page 527 of your pew Bible if you want to read along. 1 Kings chapter 5, I've been preaching a series of sermons to the life of King Solomon. One of the focal points in the Bible about Solomon's life is that he built the temple. And what I spoke on last week was an overview of this temple building project from chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. It's a long section about this. But today I want to look at chapter 5 in its detail concerning one man. His name was Hiram, the king of Tyre. And in this chapter, this is a man who greatly helped Solomon build the temple. So let me read chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon because he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram had always loved David. Then Solomon sent to Hiram, saying, this is a letter he wrote to Hiram, You know how my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which are fought against him on every side, and to the Lord, until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. And behold, I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spoke to my father David, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he shall build the house for my name. Now therefore command that they cut down cedars for me from Lebanon, and my servants will be with your servants. For I and I will pay you wages for your servants according to whatever you say. For you know there is none among us who has the skill to cut timber like the Sidonians. I thought about all the timber cutting in, y'all, in this congregation. I thought about you, buddy. <laughs> no skill like the Sidonians to cut timber down like them. Verse 7, So it was when Hiram heard the words of Solomon that he greatly rejoiced. And he said, Blessed be Yahweh. Notice he's using the covenant name here. Blessed be the Lord this day, for he has given David a wise son over this great people. Then Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I have considered the message which you sent me, and I will do all you desire concerning the cedar and the cypress logs. My servants shall bring them down from Lebanon to the sea, and I will float them in rafts by the sea to the place you indicate to me, and I will have them broken apart there, then you can take them away. And you shall fulfill my desire by giving food for my household. Then Hiram gave Solomon cedar and cypress logs according to all his desire. And Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20 cores of pressed oil. Thus Solomon gave to Hiram year by year. So the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he had promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty together. Then King Solomon raised up a labor force out of all Israel, and the labor force was 30,000 men, and he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in ships. They were one month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram, 
was in charge of the labor force. Solomon had 70,000 who carried burdens and 80,000 who carried stone in the mountains, besides 3,300 from the chiefs, so Solomon's deputies, who supervised the people who labored in the work. And the king commanded them to quarry large stones, costly stones and hewn stones to lay the foundation of the temple. So Solomon's builders, Hiram's builders, and the Gebalites quarried them, and they prepared timber and stones to build the temple. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we pray that this passage of Scripture, which deals with the construction of a physical temple a thousand years before the time of Christ, that it will give us insight and wisdom into your spiritual temple, your church today. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. You'll notice this passage of Scripture begins with the position of this king. It says in verse 1, Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon. Where is Tyre? This place named Tyre is well north of the nation of Israel, by the sea, the Mediterranean Sea. And there's another region that's mentioned there later. It's called Sidon. Usually these, this region or this area is lumped with these two names together, Tyre and Sidon. And that's why Solomon in verse 6, that no one, he says nobody cuts timber like the Sidonians. So this man is king of this area, well north of the land of Israel, around the place of Lebanon where there's massive trees. And we know from Josephus, from Josephus as a historian outside of the Bible, from around the time of Christ, and he has a lot of history that goes all the way back even before the time of Christ. But Josephus suggested that Hiram lived for 53 years and that he ruled in Tyre and Sidon for 34 years. The name Hiram actually means my brother is exalted. Now, it fits the picture here for this man. Because who is his spiritual brother? His spiritual brother was David. His spiritual brother was Solomon. And those men are the anointed of God in this time of history. So he's really fulfilling his name here. His brother is exalted. His spiritual brother, that is David and Solomon. So he has this spiritual relationship. But here's a critical point that you must understand about Hiram. He is not a Jewish man. He is a Gentile. He's a man of the nations. And this is a really big deal in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially. Because the Jewish people were what you call the covenant people. The Jewish people had the blessing, the law of Moses, this special relationship with God. But it doesn't mean that they're the only one saved in the Old Testament. What you see here is a Gentile, a man well outside the Jewish community, and he has faith in the true and living God. He is saved. He's going to help build the temple. He's outside of the covenant people. And God is going to use him and his skills and his influence to help Solomon build the temple. There's more and more evidence of his faith, his saving faith in this passage. First of all, it says he loved David. David was the anointed of the Lord in that time, a type of Christ figure. He loved David. Also in verse 7, 
It says he greatly rejoiced when he heard that Solomon was king and he praised Yahweh. Notice he's taking that covenant name Yahweh, not just God. He's taking the Lord's name, praising the Lord, for he gave David a great son with wisdom. Now it's very interesting as well that Hiram stands out like a a diamond in the rough here, or a diamond among a black cloth. What I mean by that is this. When you look in the history of Tyre, a lot of their kings were named after Baal. (laughs) Baal was a false god, a Canaanite deity. And the king that came before Hiram, his name was Abibaal. The king that came after Hiram was named Baal-ezer. And a hundred years later, after Hiram, there was another king that came up. His name was Ethbaal, and he was the father of Jezebel, who married King Ahab in Israel and led all of Israel into the Baal cult and paganism. And Elijah had to fight Jezebel with the word of God and Ahab with the word of God. But this is all the background. This is where Hiram comes from. He comes from a Baal area saturated in paganism and all that superstition of the Baal cult, which would later come into Israel's history. But he stands out as a diamond, I said, among the rough, and he is praising the Lord. Hiram reminds me of what Peter says in Acts chapter 10. Peter says this when he is talking to Cornelius. Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He believes in the Lord, and he's going to come into the church. He was outside, but he's going to come into the church. And Peter says this. He opened his mouth in Acts chapter 10, verse 34. He said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears Him and works righteousness is accepted by Him. That's really a good commentary on all of these Gentiles who were outside of the covenant community in these pagan nations, if they had saving faith in the true and living God and evidenced their faith, then God accepted them, that God brought them into that saving relationship. Now, with all this, you can see that Solomon has wisdom. This is, let me point out one application of this. You can see the wisdom of Solomon at this time in his life. His wisdom gifted him with the ability to see that Hiram was an ally. Hiram was a friend, even though Hiram was a completely different background, completely different location. There was something that connected them together. The wisdom of Solomon enabled him to see Hiram as an ally, as a friend, because he was of the same faith no matter their different background. You think about how foolish Solomon would have been if he would have thought, you know what, those, those Lebanon trees, they're not good enough for God's house. God's house is too good to have that Gentile tree in this area. That would have been a fool, a foolish assumption. But you see in verse 12, it says, the Lord gave Solomon Wisdom, And this language of giving is going back and forth in verse 10. Hiram gave Solomon cedar. Solomon gave Hiram the 220,000 cores of wheat. Solomon gave to Hiram year by year. There is this relationship. There is his friendship. 
because there's a mutual faith. Solomon look, has the wisdom look past the issue of whatever is different in them, in their background, in their heritage, and that faith unites them and brings them together and they build the temple. Can't you see how this is a good pattern of looking past a person's skin color, looking past a person's education, looking past a person's you know, status in society and say, does that person have faith in Christ? And there's a unity that Christians have, a unity that Christians have on all levels because it's the same God that they worship, the same faith. When you have the wisdom of Solomon, you have those kind of eyes that see the faith in a person's heart when they have faith in the Lord Jesus and the unity that you have with them. So that's about Hiram's faith, first of all. Now let me move on to talk about what we understand concerning God's heart. This passage of Scripture as well is showing you the heart of God. Because God's grace is not only saving people in Israel at this time in history. God's grace is splintering out, reaching out, and saving people outside of Israel. God, throughout the Old Testament, He loves to use and even bless the outsiders. So that the outsiders are even beneficial and blessed by God. Let me give you a list of this and just... As a reminder, whenever Abraham, after he conquered all the land of Israel in Genesis chapter 14, there was a Gentile who blessed him, a Gentile that Abraham came and paid tithes to him, and that was Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, that Gentile, blessed Abraham, initiated the whole covenant with Abraham with that blessing. Rahab was a Canaanite woman in Jericho. And she became a matriarch there in the nation of Israel. And she helped the Israelites. Ruth was a Moabite. And God used her mightily in the book of Ruth. Hagar, even though she was kicked out of the family of Abraham, she placed her child Ishmael to die under a tree, under a bush. And she lay down to die. And all of a sudden in Genesis chapter 21, God shows up. And says, Hagar, what's wrong? Don't fear. The Lord's heard your voice. And your son, he is going to grow up into a great nation. God provided for Hagar and blessed her. And even made Ishmael into a great nation. Even Moses' father-in-law was a Gentile. Moses' father-in-law was not a Jewish man. His name was Jethro. And Jethro gave Moses advice in Exodus chapter 18, on how to structure the nation of Israel and govern over it. Also, later in the Bible, you have Gentile kings. The the Jewish people could not have returned to build this temple, to rebuild this temple that was fallen and destroyed by the Babylonians. They could not have returned without the help of Gentile kings like Cyrus, who had faith in the Lord, Darius, who had faith in the Lord. These are Persian kings that helped the Jews rebuild the temple after the Babylonian exile. What you see in the Bible, throughout the Old Testament especially, how God, not only does He save the Jewish people, some of the Jewish people there by faith, but also the Gentiles around them, and He's using them to help with the kingdom effort. Even though in the Old Testament there's Jew and Gentile, God is using both. 
Every single one of the Gentiles or the foreigners who had faith in the true and living God were saved by the grace of God. And this helps you understand the role that Israel and the temple was to play. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to be a temple that's pointing to nations saying, look, this is the true God, not Baal, not Zeus, not those Roman deities, but this is the Lord maker of heaven and earth. And they were to use their position to bring people to faith. But that's not what happened. When you read about the life of Jesus Christ in the Gospels, what did the Jewish people do? They turned their position into a form of elitism. They turned their position into a way they would look down upon other people and look down upon the outsiders and kick out the outsiders. This is why Jesus' ministry is saturated with stories like the Good Samaritan where the outsider is the one who is truly the one exemplifying faith. The publican who doesn't even want to lift his his face up to God, beats his chest saying, Lord, be merciful to me, I'm a sinner. And he doesn't even want to come close. But Jesus tells that parable to say, look, the outsider has the grace and the Pharisee does not. Over and over again, Jesus is reaching out to the outsiders because it's a way of condemning those on the inside at his time in history. Because they turned the temple into an an idol. Remember whenever Jesus Christ cleanses the temple and drives everybody out? Jesus says, you've turned this into a den of thieves. This is to be a house of prayer for Israel? No. This is to be a house of prayer for the nations. He is so mad that that they use the temple only to feed their fat gut. He is so mad that they're devouring widows' houses only to make this, put all the gold in the temple and, and make a temple into an idol. And they're not using that temple, not using all their knowledge to evangelize the world and grab the outsiders. All this comes to a head after the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a new temple that's born. There's a new temple that starts to grow. And where does it grow? It grows in the old temple. Let me explain to you what I mean. For the first seven chapters in the book of Acts, the apostles go right where Jesus' trial was, in the temple. The apostles go right there, start preaching in the temple. And the first time they preach in the temple, they heal a man, and they go before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin says, don't you dare preach in the name of Jesus anymore. Well, do they listen? No. They go right back and they start preaching again in the name of Jesus. They go before a trial again and they beat the apostles, okay, with whips. And they beat them. And they say, don't you dare preach in the name of Jesus anymore. Do they listen? No. They pray for boldness and they get even more bold. And they go back to that same temple and they preach. This time it's Stephen. And Stephen preaches a long sermon about the whole history of Israel and how the history of Israel is how they persecute the prophets and they gnash their teeth at Stephen and they stone him to death. That's where the temple, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is born, so to speak. It's born in the womb of the old temple. Because what's the new temple? The new temple is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The new temple is the church. It's beautiful how the apostles go right back into the lion's den, so to speak, with all of their boldness. 
preaching right where Jesus was, was crucified in that arena, in that setting. And they have full boldness because they know they, do not, they should not fear death anymore because Jesus Christ has conquered death. And you notice this, that in here, in this chapter of 1 Kings chapter 5, three times Solomon says to Hiram, we're going to build a temple for the name of our God, for the name of the Lord God. That's what that temple meant. And so it's a place where God's name is appealed to and heard, and God hears the prayers of His people. But in the book of Acts, did you notice what I was saying in the threat that the Sanhedrin told the apostles, do not use the name Jesus. What you see in the book of Acts is the name is being transferred. The name that God hears, the name of the covenant, is being transferred from the physical temple to the apostolic message, the apostolic doctrine of the apostles, that the name Jesus now, that is the location of the temple. Wherever people gather, wherever Christians gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to worship Him, to praise Him, to hear from His Word, that's the new temple. So it's like in the book of Acts, there's a transition from the structure, the building that was there, that became a a massive idol in the time of Christ. And through persecution, through all that suffering, it gets transferred to the church. God's name is is upon you. God's name is here. That's why Jesus Christ says, where two or three are gathered, I am there with them. It doesn't matter how small this church would ever get. As long as it's me and somebody else, Jesus' name, His presence is here. And we can talk. And that's what makes this place the temple of the Lord. Not our building, not our structure. It's the souls that come to hear the Bible. So that's what you see is that there's a transference, God's plan. And here's another dynamic about the temple. There's no more outsiders. Remember in the Old Testament, there's saved people over here. And there's covenant people over here. Well, in the New Testament, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you're not on the outside. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you're immediately on the inside. You're in the covenant community. This is why... Whenever a person has faith in the Lord, they're immediately part of the church. There is no more anybody like Hiram outside of the church who believes in the Lord. If you believe in the Lord, you're part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let this encourage you. God's presence. God's presence is with you just like it was with Solomon, just like it was with the apostles, just like it is now. God is with you to strengthen you, to nourish you, because you're going to face whatever problems or difficulties come your way. If you know that God is with you, you can keep going step by step. Every single one of us need to know that God is with us. And that's why Jesus gives us this sacrament. This sacrament is a a sign and a seal of Jesus saying, my body and my blood is with you. Eat this by faith. Drink this by faith. And know that Jesus Christ is with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for your presence. We pray, Lord Jesus Christ, that you'll strengthen us with the truth of your presence. That you will nourish us even with this sacrament. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.